This is the Waters and Harvey Show. I'm Darren Waters. And I'm Marcus Harvey. What is civic engagement and why is it important? That was the topic of a live event on BPR's YouTube channel that we did February 11th with a fantastic panel of guests. You will hear an edited version of that in today's episode. It seems as if we live in a society where there aren't, um, there, there is not an abundance of spaces where uh, folks can sort of come together and have serious, um, critical, civil conversations about what's going on in the broader society and how what is going on in the broader society is impacting um, them individually and also their community. So I think um, what we've created here is is, is one such space, right, where, mm-hmm. where folks can come together, you and I can come together and sort of have some of these conversations. Right. And one thing I want to say here tonight, I've got to take the moment, take a rib at you, brother, because most people <laughs> don't get to see us really on camera. We're usually just in the studio now with COVID. Yeah. We're in our home offices where we're doing this via Zoom. But, you know, for those of you who are in the audience, what you don't see most of the time is that Marcus is always trying to find a way to throw me off my game. Now, he has promised <laughs> because this is being videotaped tonight that we're live, that he's not going to do that to me. So, brother, I'm going to hold you to that. <laughs> well, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. But you do have one coming, so right. look out. <laughs> okay. Well, one thing I want to say too, Marcus, as we think about the conversations that we've been having, one of the, the, the larger topics that we have been focusing on has been the issue of memory and its influence on history. So it's interesting as I think about that because we received a note from one of our listeners, John Ross, and I want to reference it here because he caught one of the last shows that we did. I think it was the show that we did with Dr. Daniel Pierce talking about what was going on with uh, this effort to try to uh, uncover the history of African-Americans who who helped to build and construct the Western North Carolina Railroad. And he actually said that I caught a bit of your show on memory and, and, and its influence on history. And he said it was absolutely fascinating. But he said the problem is that we we can't remember what we don't know. And so it, again, Marcus, that reminded me again of why it is so important that we we have created this show to, to talk about things that we don't necessarily know. And I've gotten a lot of feedback from a lot of people saying, you know, we, we didn't know these things that you all are talking about. We appreciate you bringing them to our attention. Yeah, and I think this whole question of of our relationship to the past is really, and memory, um, historical memory, um, is really an important question because um, I, I think that you know if we are to um, gain an accurate understanding of the present. Um, and also chart a workable course, a workable path forward into the future, uh, we have to have the courage um, as a community, um, as a state, um, as a nation, to really interrogate our relationship with the past, right? Mm -hmm. What is the nature of that relationship? Is it a healthy relationship? Is it an educated relationship? Um, Is it a formative relationship? Is it a dysfunctional relationship? (laughs) Um, And and if it is dysfunctional, you know, why is that the case? Uh, What can be done to address that? So, again, I mean, I think this this ongoing conversation about historical memory um, and about how the past relates to the present is absolutely essential um, in in a democratically organized uh, society that 
cares about uh, the future right, uh, right. Um, of that society or of so itself, I, I should say. Yeah. So, Marcus, I think, you know, you bringing up that is a great segue into our topic tonight. Civic engagement. What is civic, civic engagement and why is it important? And so we have a great panel uh, with us tonight, a group of people who I consider friends and colleagues who agreed to kind of come together to discuss this issue of civic engagement. And before we turn to the first two panelists, what I want to do is I, we got a note from Hunter Corn who is the head of the Wild Acres Leadership Initiative, the William Friday Fellowship, a good friend and colleague. And his comment that came in, I thought was very interesting because he said, to me, civic engagement means both inquiry and action into all spheres of life. This applies not only to, to what may be traditionally understood as governmental or public spaces, but also to interpersonal relationships, even to neighbors, which is something that you and I've talked about. But what's important, what really caught my eye that he quoted Ella Baker, major civil rights leader, and he said that Ella Baker said in a rally in 1974, quote, a nice gathering like this today is not enough. You have to go back and reach out to your neighbors who you don't speak to, end quote. And I think that's fundamentally important. So we've invited Dr. William Turner, who many of our listeners know because they've heard him on the show before, and Miss Tracy Green Washington, who people in this community are going to know who's been in the philanthropic world to kind of join us in this conversation about about civic engagement. And what we'd like to do is ask Dr. Turner to give us some historical perspective because he was directly involved with the civil rights movement in the 1960s and 70s. And I'd like to hear from him what does civic engagement look like then and how has it changed? And then to hear from Tracy about the larger, this larger, the larger issue of civic engagement beyond just the political, but talking about what's going on in the world of philanthropy. So, Bill, welcome to the show. Tracy, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us tonight. Thank you both. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. Um, I hope that uh, my turf of white hair uh, doesn't give me away in terms of fact I'm 75 years old. So I ain't no spring chicken. Uh, and uh, in that sense, uh, uh, my life has been framed by, you know, the civil rights movement. Uh, I haven't been born at the end of the Second World War. But I also want to very quickly go to the point of my background. I grew up in Eastern Kentucky. Uh, doing what you might call the days of rigid segregation. I'm sure you had such a thing like that in Asheville, too. My daddy was a coal miner. Uh, uh, we went to a so-called segregated colored school, like the one uh, you had there in uh, Asheville, Darren. I'm sorry, I can't think of the name of it, but I think Al Whitesides went to school there. Probably. That's right, Stevens Lee. Right, Al and I the same age, so we, we had the same background. So uh, my father was, a, was an ardent trade unionist. My father belonged to the United Mine Workers of America, and that was a very strong labor movement in the 1930s and 40s. But also in our hometown, like in the Asheville's Black community, uh, I was surrounded by people for whom civic engagement was a way of life, because even when you were in school, uh, you were required almost to uh, be in some play, some operetta. Uh, uh, there was a Cora Calente, there was the uh, Eastern Star, there were the uh, uh, Prince Hall Masons, there were the Elks, uh, there were the Sunday school church meetings, the Boy Scout things, the Girl Scout things that we were doing. So there was virtually no distractions like you have nowadays. You had to get involved in something because it was a dynamic little community and we had this kind of consciousness of kind 
and we had a sense of a common destiny. And also, too, we had these preachers and these teachers who kept us all on track so that we literally grew up. And by the time Martin Luther King uh, and Ella Baker, of course, being involved as she was with the founding of SNCC, uh, by the time I arrived to that in 1965, when I was 19 years old, to be involved seemed quite natural. You dared not be involved because that's what everybody was doing. It was in our music. It permeated the entire culture. So uh, that's that's the framework I would start with in terms of memory uh, in my life. The way a fishing line, a fly line has a memory to it. And uh, I haven't managed to get away from that memory in 75 years. Well, thank you, Bill, for that perspective. And and I, I do want to say here, because I didn't say it before Tracy jumps in, that you, your autobiography is going to be coming out really soon. And so just for our audience, just to let them know, they'll be able to get that book, uh, which is titled A Harlan Renaissance of uh, Growing Up in Harlan, Kentucky. So, Bill, we're really looking forward to that. Well, I am, too, in a way. You know, it takes a, a, a little hubris uh, and a little... Uh, uh, a sprinkle of arrogance to think somebody might want to read about your life anyway. So it's really not about me as much as I would like to think it's a group biography because I passed around amongst 20 good friends that I grew up with, some of whom are 15 years old than I am. I worked over this over the last eight or nine years. Uh, so yeah, it'll, it'll come out from West Virginia University Press and it, it's called the Harlan, H-A-R-L-A-N, but it's also a kind of takeoff on the Harlem Renaissance. In the, in the, in the period in the 20s when Harlem was the epicenter of black life and culture in America, that place I grew up in in eastern Kentucky, in what we call the very heart of Appalachia, uh, 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 Harlem, Kentucky was what we used to call the blackest town for mountains around. And uh, I didn't see a lot of white people until I went to college. You know, I mean, I literally called my daddy when I got to college and said, oh, Lord, dad, I didn't know there was this many white people in the world. I'm very serious because we grew up in this insular little community uh, and it was just a fascinating place. But because it was so tied to one industry, coal mining, as that became mechanized, the first people that were let go were the black people. So in the town where I was born in the mid 40s, where there were 14,000 people, well, right now there are probably more people in a dormitory there at UNCA than live in my hometown. I think it's about 500 people live in town now. Tracy, we want to turn to you as well. Tracy, uh, very accomplished in the philanthropic world, also an author. And Tracy, I want to let everybody know the, the title of your book, if they don't know, and you can get it. Um, her book is called Choosing Purposeful Alignment, The Messy Middle of Transformation. And so, Tracy, we want to hear from you a little bit about your perspective about civil, uh, a civic engagement, especially as you look at it yeah. from the perspective of the philanthropic world. Thank you for that, Darren. And I'm so excited to be here with everyone. Dr. Turner, thank you for weaving together like this beautiful history. You know, as you were talking, I couldn't help but think about my experience of when I first engaged around community organ organizing with the NAACP and Elder Hayes. And so those memories just kind of hearkened and came back to me. And there was a couple of things that came up for me too, Dr. Turner, as you were talking and really talking about civic engagement is the fact that it was not static, like it's dynamic, right? The very nature of engagement is that it is ever changing, but it has to be intentional. And I love that you lifted that up. 
but it is about relationships, right? It's very relational, right? You can't be in and advocating for issues if you don't trust each other or have a connection. And what I love about it too, Dr. Turner, when you talked about that it activated something, right? And it, and it wasn't about addressing really soft issues. It was really about addressing those entrenched, hard, messy issues. But what it also lifted up for me too, the very nature of putting civic in terms of engagement, it raises the question of who was left out. And it, that's particularly relevant as we think about today's context and what we are supporting, what we are seeing from a multi-generational perspective in terms of the movements that it, we are that are happening and that we're seeing unfold across, you know, globally, right? So for me, when I thought about civic engagement, there are a couple of questions that came up for me as well. And it wasn't, it was, it wasn't exactly about what it meant, but what was required, right? And so what is required for civic engagement to really be impactful is that we, it's proximity. We have to be willing to get close to each other. We have to be willing to get close to the issues and unpack them, right? We can't be scared of them and we can't be scared of discomfort. We have to understand and get close to the people who are directly impacted and center them in a way that allows them to be able to move into the space and to really facilitate the solutions to the problems that are facing our communities. It also requires us to have healthy, equitable, and positive relationships, right? Those are relationships where we don't villainize each other, that we are there to work together in service to a shared line of sight and being clear, being clear that we won't let the, the mess, the muck, get in the way of us getting there. And I think the other thing that comes up for me is that it requires us to have an equity lens and in particular a racial equity lens, because when we look at the data and we disaggregate it along racial lines, the folks that are most impacted by the issues and the, the and that community engagement is meant to facilitate, activate and address are people of color. Right. They are black, indigenous people of color. However, you self-identify as African-American and Latinx from a gender perspective. Um, talking about the LGBTQ community and on and on and on. And I think the last thing that comes up to me, and I'm going to talk about the role of philanthropy relative to civic engagement, is that it requires courageous conversations. And I'm not talking about the polite conversations. I'm talking about the meaty conversations where we are holding each other accountable and, and are holding each other accountable in a way that we, we learn, unlearn, and think about how we move into these spaces in an intentional way as allies, as partners, but also as provocateurs and disruptors as we move forward. And so as I think about the role of uh, philanthropy in facilitating social change, I actually think that they can play and have played a critical role in that. Um, and they have the ability, particularly if it's strategic philanthropy. Now, there's a difference between uh, traditional philanthropy that has this more charity-oriented mindset than those that are strategic philanthropic organizations. What I've observed over the course of my career is when they, they are strategic, they understand that place matters. The context of where you do this work, where you engage is important. They understand the role of equity and inclusion. 
They understand that although they may lead with their financial capital, that they have to use other tools in their arsenal beyond financial capital. They have social capital in thinking about the relationships they build, um, intellectual property uh, uh, capital in terms of the research that they're able to put out and do it from an equitable place. You know, they have relational capital and it goes on and on and on and they need to activate that as they move forward. And so as I think about the work in terms of that's complementary to that, I can't help but lift up CoThink's work because CoThink's work is all about social change philanthropy, which is complementary to strategic philanthropy, but it's very different. It's, very, it's from the very beginning, it is about engaging those and centering those that are most impacted by the work and seeing those individuals as the drivers to be able to come up with the solutions by focusing on their time, talent, and treasure. It is explicit about equity unapologetically. And it is specific about ways that a counterculture, counterculture to dominant culture that really work for our community. When I think about the work of CoThink in Western North Carolina, one of the things that I think was very powerful in, in our work is from the very beginning, it was collective, it was about building consensus, and it was strategic and it was intentional. We knew that if we were gonna be successful that we had to focus on four strategic levers. Healing, that many people don't wanna talk about that has to be centered in our work. Capacity building, thinking about how we build the capacity of others as well as ourselves to show up in space, to be able to be disruptors, positive disruptors in changing systems and structures. Also thinking about access to resources and making sure that those individuals that can drive the change actually have the resources to, do, to be able to do it. And in thinking about resources, not just in a traditional ways in terms of grants, but capacity building in terms of coaching, self-care stipends, and really figuring out what that means for us in community. And I wanna say the last pillar that we focused on is really talking about structural change. Because the reality is you can do all this work, but if you don't change the systems, if you don't change the structures, then there's no way you can facilitate and sustain transformational change in our community. So as I think about the role of civic engagement, what I will say is that in philanthropy, that, that there are critical levers that we all can deploy. But we have to make sure those that are most impacted, directly impacted, are coming up with the solutions and are the drivers of change. If we don't do that, then we are perpetuating an endless cycle of structures and systems that we said that we went to, wanted to interrupt. It is our responsibility to figure out what those appropriate levels are as we move forward. We're going to continue our conversation here on the Waters and Harvest Show after a short break. Please stay with us. Welcome back to the Waters and Harvey Show. This episode is a shorter version of a live event we did February 11th on BPR's YouTube channel on renewing our culture of civic engagement. We pick up the conversation now with Dr. William Turner, a retired sociologist and one of the foremost experts on Black history in Southern Appalachia. First, I want to mention and commend what you go to a website. It's called snickdigital.org. And you talking about a, a wealth of information on the way SNCC people operated, particularly in terms of relationships. 
uh, personal relationships that people had that went from Kentucky, where I was, to G's Bend, Alabama, to Greenwood, Mississippi, and back to Greensboro, North Carolina. And uh, uh, so that we, we all actually knew each other very well. We, we had some very personal relationships. I was sitting once, Darren, with your mentor, John Hope Franklin, he and Sierra Lincoln, and they were talking about how in those days, every black PhD in the United States knew each other. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, man, we all knew each other because when we went to Nashville, we couldn't stay in the hotels, we stayed in each other's homes. And so now there are black PhDs down the street for me that I don't know mm. uh, because we don't have those kind of relationships anymore. So, you know, when we, when we talk about SNCC, which meant so much to me in terms of being a, in an organization like that, uh, because SNCC was pretty decentralized also. I mean, you know, much like we see with the Black Lives Movement today, it's a very decentralized movement. Uh, uh, and, and while it uh, uh, came out of the church uh, uh, organization, SNCC was also got to be known as the most militant, if you will, of those organizations at that time. You may recall, for example, uh, out of SNCC became the uh, Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party with Fannie Lou Hamer mm -hmm. and the Black Panther Party and later the All-African People's Revolutionary Party. Uh, people talking about democratic socialism, which uh, the senator in Vermont. So uh, uh, the March on Washington, the Freedom, we did a lot of direct action. Mm -hmm. uh, and so if, uh, nowadays when I see the difference, nowadays it seems to me uh, people are much more likely to respond to specific incidences like Breonna Taylor's murder or the murder of George Floyd. Whereas in those days, we were involved in things every week, every day. It was We did not wait until somebody was suffocated. Dr. Turner, I, I love that you talked about this notion of um, these movements in some ways being reactive. I actually share a different perspective um, that I think is complementary to what you're lifting up. I actually think that that they that these movements have been readying themselves um, and they have been positioning themselves for a long time. Mm -hmm. And I think I think what's really beautiful about it is that they're movements within movements. Right. It's not just one movement. There are multiple movements that are ready to be activated. And I think that they have been just getting ready for the right moment. And as a result of being ready in that right moment, they're able to activate it in a way that's very powerful. I do think as I think about the role of philanthropy that I think is a challenge is that oftentimes when philanthropy supports civic engagement, they support it around an issue, a, a action or a particular moment in time. And what we need and continuously need as, as, we are, as these movements are being um, seeded is that we need ongoing support that is multi-year that allows for innovation in this space to be strategic. When I think about what happened in Georgia with Latasha and Stacey Abrams, that was the result of multiple years of, of organizations and communities getting ready. Even when I think about the, the emergence of CoThink as a social change philanthropy in Asheville, it was the result of multiple issues, multiple conversations that have been happening for many, many years, starting with at UNCA, Darren and others talking about the data relative to racial equity, right? And then talking about um, the role that the city could play and the county could play. 
then, then building the capacity of leaders and in other institutions to be able to talk about racial equity and, and be able to think about what is their role, what ways they are complicit and what ways, what role they need to play in being able to activate change in a community. There's no way that CoThink could be able to move into our community in a way that it has been without the work that had been seeded for many, many years prior to us being able to activate this new lever to move this work forward. And so I think it's this really secret sauce, this gumbo, but I think it is a, a balance between this readiness, right, and waiting for that right opportunity to be able to unleash it, to move it forward in a way that really is sustainable and, and is not a moment in time. It really is about transformational and structural change. Well, thank you, Dr. Turner and Tracy, for um, those insights uh, surrounding the historical and philanthropic dimensions of civic engagement. Um, I think these, I think your your comments uh, enable us to segue nicely um, into the political dimensions of civic engagement, right? Um, as a kind of practice, right? So we can talk about civic engagement also as a political practice, right? Um, as well as being a historically related practice in a philanthropic practice. Uh, but as we all know, um, our current political climate of, of late over the past uh, several years has been quite contentious, uh, to say the least. Um, and, you know, there are questions now, I think, about um, what the sort of present contentious nature of our political climate um, has had or may be having um, on the attitudes of Americans around the whole question of civic engagement. And so uh, here to help us think about that, um, our doctors Chris Cooper and Ashley Moragues. Uh, a quick note on, on these two panels. Dr. Cooper is the Robert Lee Madison Distinguished Professor and Department Head of Political Science and Public Affairs at Western Carolina University. He's also the co-author of a book entitled The Resilience of Southern Identity, Why the South Still Matters in the Minds of Its People, and the co-editor of The New Politics of North Carolina. Uh, Dr. Moragues is, is an assistant professor Professor of Political Science at UNC Asheville, where I teach, uh, with teaching specialties and interest in American political institutions. So um, why don't we start with Dr. Cooper first. Um, thoughts about this whole question around the contentious nature of our political climate currently, and whether or not you see this as having an impact on how people think about political engagement, how they engage the question of political engagement, and really on their, uh, perhaps on their, their interest or their enthusiasm around um, public engagement in this way. But I think maybe I'll, if the running the risk of, uh, of changing the terms ever so slightly, I might push us to think a little bit about the term political engagement instead of civic engagement, which is not to say I don't think civic engagement is important. I do, of course. But I think sometimes we've been too quick to let the word political become a pejorative, right? So if I say I'm going to have a political conversation, everybody sort of backs up. And, I don't really want to have that now. But I think we need to remember that politics is the is the way in which we should peacefully be trying to get to resolution. So I want us just to maybe think a little bit about, you know, not moving away from the term civic, I don't mean that at all, but just re reminding ourselves that it can be political and civic at the same time, and that political isn't necessarily a bad thing. And then finally, on that point, that political doesn't necessarily mean governmental. So there's a a political scientist who says something basically like politics is about who gets what, when, where, and how. 
And if you think about politics in that way, it's this really broadening way of thinking about it, right? It's not just about what Congress does, whether it needs two-thirds vote. It's about how we get the things that we're after. Those don't have to be goods, right? Those can be ideas. Those can be freedoms. Those can be ideals. Um, that can be freedom. It can be whatever the thing is that we're after. So I think just kind of thinking that through a little bit, trying to, to sort of rescue the notion of political. Um, at the same time, when I say political, I don't mean scrolling Twitter. Uh, I don't mean um, complaining to your friends at the bar about politics, although that can be fun in, in a non-COVID world. Um, but what I mean is, is using politics to achieve an end. So there's, there's a book I like a lot that, that I think um, we talked about when I was in your show before called um, Politics is for Power by a political scientist named Eaton Hirsch. And his argument is that we've started to spend too much time thinking about political hobbyism, right? So the notion that like, if you're on Twitter and you get the sick burn on whoever you're after, that is somehow political engagement. But that's really not doing anything else other than maybe temporarily making yourself feel better, right? So he's saying, hey, we need to remember that politics is for power. And that's a good thing again. Politics is about action. Politics is about trying to get an end, not to exact some rhetorical revenge on your ally. Um, and I think this actually plays nicely with the last panel. You know, I think Tracy said, um, uh, Tracy Green Washington said, you know, we need to have courageous conversations, sort of made a note of that. I thought that was a, a better way to say it than I could ever come up with. And she also talked about changing structures that leads to transformational change. And again, I think this is all kind of the same idea, right? That it's not about nasty rhetoric. It's about using politics, having courageous conversations, and changing the structures that get us there. So I sort of take a pause there and, and, and let Ashley uh, uh, kind of hop at it for a while. Yeah, Ashley, so so, uh, so we'll turn to you now. Thoughts mm -hmm. on, on, on this question of the political parameters, um, political in the sense that Dr. Cooper has just outlined mm -hmm. um, of civic engagement. So mm -hmm. we're happy to turn to you. I've thought a lot about engagement in this particular political climate. I started teaching political science right before the Trump presidency. And so my whole kind of career to this point has been in this very contentious period. Um, and I really have thought, you know, I always tell my students that engagement is more than voting. And I think everything is political, like, you know, interpersonal relationships are person are uh, political as well. And so I'm very uh, sympathetic to Dr. Cooper's point there about, you know, talking about political engagement. Um, but thinking about political engagement in this particular contentious period of time, I think is really interesting because there is some research out there that says that people are more engaged than ever. And this is really when they say that they're talking about voting in some ways, especially the 2020 election where we had really high turnout. And we also find that the motivation here is something called negative partisanship, which has been getting a lot of traction so um, Alan Abramowitz and Stephen Webster, two political scientists, have talked about this a lot, that what's motivating people now, which is different than in the past, is not an affinity towards our party or like-minded individuals or issues we care about, but it's animosity towards the other side. And that this has really taken off in the past five to 10 years, maybe, and especially more recently that we've seen this. And I think that's absolutely true when it comes to the issue of voting. I'm not sure that I think it's true for all types of civic engagement or political engagement. because so I think there's so much more to it than just voting. Um, and I really think it's a more consistent and um, 
it's more of an investment in political activity when we're talking about political engagement, not just showing up to the polls every two or four years to cast your vote, though that is a very important part of civic engagement, one that I encourage. And so what I've been thinking a lot about is, you know, what's getting people to engage or not engage in ways other than voting right now. And I think it's really an issue of trust at the end of the day. We have record low levels of historic trust um, in the past 10 years. Pew has been doing research. And I think in late 2020, 20% 20% of the public said that they trust the government right now and only trust p- other people in their community at like a percent of 30, I think it was. So really low levels of trust. And so I've been thinking like, well, what's going on? Why aren't people trusting government or their neighbors as much? And I I actually want to lay the blame at least partially on our politicians. I'm, I'm going to pander to Darren here a little bit and talk about Tocqueville very briefly, and then I can throw it back um, <laughs> to the rest of the panel. But Tocqueville thought the big strength of American politics was was the fact that, you know, we had this vibrant social state or civil society where people Mm. were super engaged and we had these free institutions that people could engage in really easily. And that's what like strengthened our democratic institutions. And I want to make the argument, and I'm sure uh, Chris will be sympathetic to this, that our politicians, because they're self-interested and want to keep their jobs and keep their power, they design institutions to make it harder for us to engage with the process. Mm. This Mm -hmm. is true in voting. This is true and almost every political aspect. And so one of the problems here isn't necessarily an individual responsibility, though that exists, but it's just navigating the system that was designed to be really hard for us to navigate. So I'll leave it there. I'm happy to go in more detail, but I can kick it back to everyone. Well, Ashley, I I appreciate the fact that you were the first one to bring up Alexis to fulfill (laughs) and not me, because uh, Marcus and and Chris would have uh, really made uh, hay of that if I had been the first one to say it. Um, But, you know, Ashley and and Chris, to get you both to kind of respond to this, I, I appreciate the perspectives that you have offered. And Chris, I do have to take one dig at you in talking about changing the language here from civic to political, it explains why you have just a, a small circle of friends when you're trying to change this language. No, I'm just, I'm just kidding, Kirk. I had to take that. Seat. Right. But here's what I would ask you, and and you've alluded to this, Ashley. You know, I was on a panel with you not too long ago where you talked brilliantly about the Constitution, Chris. You and I have talked about the Constitution. You, me, and you in a conversation that Marcus and I had with you, we talked about the Constitution, especially the state's constitution, which is very hard to understand. So, you know, I'm wondering, uh, Ashley and Chris, to if there's somewhat of a decline in political engagement, and we'll use that language, Chris, I think you're right to try to change the way we see that. If, if there's somewhat of a decline or this, this distrust in the political process, is, is that in any way linked to a lack of real good civics education about how our institutions actually function? You know, we, we have been watching uh, uh, lately this process that's, that is going on in Washington, D.C. right now, and it just strikes me that many people are really confused when they see how Congress itself actually functions. Um, do we really understand how our government, especially the legislative branch of government functions, and it, is that something that we need to kind of tend to? Yeah. Um, I'll hop in. Yeah, uh, yes. Can I just say yes? Um, I, I do think we need to pay more attention to that. And I, I don't just say that as a full employment plan for Ashley and I. Um, I think we need to to do a better job teaching civics. Um, there's a, a kind of a fun article from a few years ago that says we should be teaching barbarics instead of civics. And I 
their point was an interesting one, right? Essentially, they're arguing that when we teach this, how bill becomes a law, I'm just a bill on Capitol Hill version of politics, that people then get surprised, right? And they say, wow, it isn't that clean. It is kind of messy. And, and sometimes these people say bad things about each other. And so we're, we're sort of the gap between what we expect out of government and what we get out of government um, grows because of the ways in which we teach these things. Um, so yes, I think we need to rethink how we teach politics. And um, I also think we need to spend more, you sort of mentioned briefly, Darren, and, and thanks, the sort of state constitution. And I think spending more time thinking about the state and local levels, spending more time thinking about um, questions about how we're governed a little bit closer to home uh, would would be more than welcome. I think most folks aren't even really aware that there's state constitutions in addition to a federal constitution. Getting students, even in college, to think through you know, what's going on in Raleigh versus what's going on in Washington. And those are separate things with separate rules. So absolutely, I think more education um, could help combat some of this and might rescue congressional approval, which right now I believe is below cockroaches and the ban Nickelback, um, which, is, which is to say low. Yeah, it, thanks for those comments, Chris. And I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm thinking, uh, Dr. Moragas, about about uh, your point around um, how you know there's there there just seems to be um, a distrust, right, um, in the political process. I'm thinking also about the very important and astute point you made about how um, the our democratic system of governance has been designed. It seems that it's been designed or engineered to make it harder to participate. And so, um, uh, Darren knows that, uh, that that as far as uh, as far as he and I are concerned, I tend to to veer more in the direction of pessimism when it comes to America's political future, whereas he tends to be more optimistic. So, my so my my question is um, uh, really twofold. One. Um, in, in a so-called democratically organized system of governance, how can it be the case, right, that um, those in power have the freedom to construct a system such that participation in the system is difficult or, or much harder than it should be? And then two, how ironic it is, or, or, do, you, do, I, or, or do you both find it ironic that um, in a democratic society uh, that, you know, that depends upon you know, citizens being engaged politically, voting, that there doesn't seem to be much of a of of an investment, right, in educating and critically educating the American citizenry around issues like civics, for example, uh, not to mention a host of other issues. So, any thoughts you might have, Dr. Moragas and, and Dr. Cooper, uh, on this would be would be very uh, uh, very interesting, I think, to consider. You're not asking easy questions, there, <laughs> but they're astute. And I will uh, at the outset say I tend to be a cynic about American politics also, but I try uh -huh. to I try to see the silver lining on occasion. I certainly think there is an irony to the extent that we don't invest in civics education. Absolutely. I think it's incredibly problematic. And I think one of the things we don't teach people enough about in American politics is how the rules dictate the day. So these rules are procedures that don't necessarily have to be codified into law, though sometimes they are how they're doing it. So if you think about the filibuster in the Senate, which I think is something that's really misunderstood or 
people just aren't aware of the effect it has or the agenda setting powers of the party leadership in Congress or the state legislature. Um, but these are things that really, I mean, the power to block something from getting a vote is the biggest power that I think a lot of our politicians have. And I think that's really not well understood. It's something I don't think I thought about until I was in graduate school studying Congress, that this is the main way that power was wielded. And so I do, I want to agree with Chris about how important that like teaching people about this and definitely the state and local level as well because that affects your everyday life more is so critical to knowing what reforms to agitate for. Um, you have to understand how the system works to some extent to know what changes need to be made to make the system more democratic. And to your question of like, you know, how politicians have the freedom to do this in a democratic system. I mean, like I said before, some of these are just rules they adopt, you know, rules of the chamber that they can pass by simple majority. They're not technically a law, but then we get into things that are much more questionable. So if you think about gerrymandering, the fact that the constitution says the states get to decide how their elections are run. And so that gives a lot of power to the state legislature to draw the districts that they get elected from or that their colleagues get elected from. And so then, you know, they kind of take advantage of some constitutional ambiguity to empower themselves and entrench themselves into power. And I think that's also something that we don't give enough attention to in our civics education. In high school, middle school, these are things that we should start learning about earlier because I think these are some of the least democratic practices, but we kind of just take them for fact when that need not be the case. We're going to take a short break here on the Waters and Harvey Show. We'll be back in just a moment. Thanks for joining us. Welcome back to the Waters and Harvey Show. We continue with this shorter version of our live event that we did February 11th on BPR's YouTube channel, which focused on renewing our culture of civic engagement. As we were thinking about leaders, about leaders, what what does the future hold? What 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 is coming uh, behind us? And we're so glad and honored to have two additional panelists here, two young panelists. Both are seniors at Asheville High School. Um, both are leaders in their community. We have Seth Bellamy. We have Miranda Williams with us, and we want to turn to them. And one of the questions that I would like to ask you all to to consider as you begin to give us your perspective on. On, on civic engagement, what it looks like for your generation. I'd like to ask you too to kind of consider, you know, what example are we giving you all? Are we giving you a good example today of what civic engagement looks like? Or do you all feel that you are having to kind of chart your own path here? And then I also think, you know, Seth and, and Miranda, you know, about, um, you know, what legacy do you all want to leave? I mean, studies have shown that your generation is much more engaged than, let's say, maybe my generation or the generation right behind me, that you all are much more engaged in your communities in trying to change things. What accounts for that? But we're glad to have you here, glad that you all could join us. And it's so important, I believe, for us to hear these young voices. So, Seth and Miranda, whichever one of you want to go first, we want to turn the floor over to you. Hey, yes, thank you so much. Um, my name is Miranda Williams. I am a senior at Asheville High School. And so to start off, I guess I'll briefly talk about what civic engagement is to me. So um, 
Broadly, civic engagement is an individual or group addressing public, political, or societal issues, but civic engagement looks different to everyone and for everyone. Some people prefer to be on the front lines of change, and they want to take that role as an advocate and be the peacemaker like me. And some are simply trying to heal and re-educate themselves from biased teachings and generational trauma. You know, civic engagement, in my opinion, is a lifelong commitment. You know, you can't glance at the inequities and privilege in this land of the free and go back to life as normal. I feel like that is part of the reason why we are so deep in this systematic racism and oppression now, because we continue to acknowledge a problem without a solution. Do I feel that previous generations have led by examples? I definitely feel that growing up, I saw a mix of both. So like I had some really good influences that without a doubt motivated me to be where I am now, but also had some horrible influences that motivated me from like more of a negative perspective and made me feel like never again will you make me feel like this. You know, most of my positive role models aren't in textbooks and aren't people that you could look up on the Internet. I mean, that's not to discredit Martin Luther King, Rosa Parks, Malcolm X, because these are essentials when you're talking about Black history. But the women or the people that I'm talking about now are these strong Black women from these lower income communities that are often overlooked but are essential to the success and emotional, physical, and cultural development in these communities. You know, like from my personal experience, my best role mother is my mother. You know, she instilled in me from a really young age that the one thing that no one can ever take from you um, is what you know, you know, she taught me in a nation of greed and money and that, you know, that wasn't where the power resided. It resided in knowledge. And my mother, she doesn't have a college degree, but she taught me something that Asheville City Schools couldn't. You know, I went through a period of time in elementary school. I don't know if um, some of you are familiar with the language gap where I could read or I could spell, but I couldn't really read. And because, you know, being from where I was from, you know, teachers didn't really take that time out to help me get to where I needed to be. So she had to take on that role as mother, teacher, father. And that's where the real power resided for me. And that's what gave me the motivation to become who I am becoming now. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Miranda, for sharing that and sharing and being vulnerable. I also want to thank the panelists who came before me and who have set the path that we're on now um, to actually even have this conversation about civic engagement and where we are today. And so one thing that has been a recurring theme throughout our conversation is if you know better, you will do better. And we talked about education. We talked about us having the memory. And if you can't remember something, you don't know. And something that has been galvanizing toward me for how I'm involved in civic engagement in my local community, in my school community, and even in the places I interact with on a daily basis is that hist historical aspect. And so for many of us, we have first um, learned history from the eyes of our parents or from what they tell us or from what the school tells us, but civic engagement is taking a step forward and taking a step into the history that is more likely to be hidden, the history that is more likely to be in the back of the textbook, the history that is more likely to represent people of color who have been a constant part of what we consider the American dream, but have not had the light shine on them unless it's through strife. And so right now in this time of civic engagement, um, Dr. Harvey and um, you brought up this idea of example that we are being set or setting a, a 
ahead of us. Um, and it's kind of has multiple variables to it. Are we looking at the setting, um, what has been set during the civil rights movement um, and what Dr. Turner brought up about what he was involved in um, in his version of Harlem in Kentucky? Or are we talking about the example that has been set on January 6th? And so there are multiple levels to what we want to look at and what we want to shine light on. And all of these are forms of civic engagement. And so as we move forward through this time, Miranda and I are kind of setting our own path, but also gleaning from the people before us and our predecessors. And so for many of us, we were first initially recognized and um, engaged with A-Score and understanding who they were. And if you don't know, they were um, the racial equity club at Stevens Lee High School. And they were the ones petitioning Woolworths to desegregate. And they were the ones who were first in our city of Asheville calling out the racism, both emboldened and hidden uh, systemically here. And so that is how Miranda and I are able to move forward and actually be engaged in the way we want to be. And so now Miranda and I specifically are involved in REAP, which is racial equity racial equity ambassadors program where we're actually teaching teachers about racial equity and we're not only teaching but we're also giving tools and so education is a very good truism about how to move forward but also how do people enact what they're learning and i think that's a very important part that the people who are talking about politics before us um both of those doctors were bringing up about how are people able to use what they know about systems to change their structures and right now we are having a lot of issues with changing those structures because of the lack of access and so that's what it looks like for us to change sustainably who has access to change? Who has access to actually building a foundation for future generations to actually en enact the change they want to see? And so Stacey Abrams, that was brought up by Miss um, Washington, uh, yeah, Ms. Washington brings up a good point about how she was able to get so many people registered to vote, which is just a simple form of access. And so I know from my from my experience, I did not have access initially once I started high school because I didn't know what to access. I didn't know what I wanted to change, but I knew I was proximate to certain issues. So I know I had to take a step out of what I learned in civics. So what I initially learned at Schoolhouse Rock with the petition, but I actually had to move forward in how will I seek the change that I want to see within the uh, place around me? So I had to go to school board meetings and actually speak up and say, this is what it actually looks like in an APN honors classroom. I had to actually go to public health meetings and say, this is what happens when you send this certain messaging that villainizes us uh, or villainizes people who use certain substances. But in actuality, there are major disparities in what is being seen and what is not. And so it's very important for us to understand what issues that we are proximate to and how can we change them in the most simplest and most robust ways. And so that's the legacy that I really want to leave moving forward is who has access and how can change the historical narrative that only certain people are able to be in Congress, only certain people are able to be both state and U.S. senators. I know for many of us, we were recognizing that only 11 Black U.S. senators have existed, and that was daunting. But for many of us, that was something that was just surreal and something that we know about everyday existence. And so as we move forward, it's very important for us to recognize the systems that we are coming from, but also where we want to move forward and how to change them civically.
brother, you, you have a, a question. I'm going to let you jump in here, but I want to say one thing. I want to make one observation here. So now if you're walking away from this pessimistic, you know, brother, I don't know. What to do <laughs> so, you know, because this, you know, just listening to both Fair Miranda point. and Seth, that it, it, it leaves me very hopeful. Um, and so I, you know, just, just really proud to hear what you all had to say, but brother, I had to take another dig, you know? So, yeah. no, hey, that was a good one. That was a good one. No, but, but Miranda and Seth, Thanks so much for your thoughtful comments and for the work that you you were doing already um, at, at the high school level. It really is energizing to me. And as Dr. Waters just said, it does really challenge my, my, my pessimism uh, about America's political uh, future. But um, I'm really struck, um, um, Seth, by your point about uh, concerning the work that you're doing to teach teachers, right? So teaching teachers about racial equity and structural change and issues surrounding those two, those two topics. Um, so I'm curious to hear more from both of you about what your experience has been as students, right, whose activism includes sort of subversively educating teachers about these issues. Um, have teachers been receptive to this? Have they, have you experienced pushback? Uh, what has the dynamic been like, uh, uh, Seth? and Miranda. Um, yes, so definitely. So the Racial Equity Ambassadors, this is the first year it's ever been um, implemented in Asheville High School in Sosa. And yes, unfortunately, there has been some pushback. But on the very first, like the very first time we presented, we expected it because before this program was implemented in Asheville High School, me as an African-American female can honestly tell you that I could feel the biases and I could feel, you know, like the stereotypes and the racism that was hidden, but there, you know what I mean? And some of it was on accident, you know, students segregate themselves unintentionally, but some of it, especially coming from like the adults was intentional. And like, as I go through some of this feedback that we do get from the teachers, it, it really is an eye opener. Like it really, it really makes me think, you know, like I know you could hold these biases in the classroom in person, but while everything is still, you know, while everything's virtual, I can see, you know, when school let out, it gave us a chance to reimagine what education looked like. And instead of you guys taking that time to do that and come together and say they deserve better as students, you know, we deserve better as a school and as an education system, we're we're stuck in the cycle. So, but I guess the good thing that I would say, like overall is that every time I go and look at the feedback, the good outweighs the bad, but there is some bad and there is some pushback. So. Absolutely. Thank you, Miranda, for bringing up that balance. And so I do want to bring up the moniker again, if you know better, you can do better. And so for many of the people involved in systems, um, teachers, principals, administrations, or anyone involved in any major system, you know that you are steeped into this historical nature of how you even got to this place. How is this system even existing in this moment? And so sometimes you're enacting the system without even knowing it. And so if you tell a fish that they're in the ocean, but all they see is what they know, um, it kind of challenges them because they've just been swimming along in this water. Um, and so as we go and develop within racial equities ambassadors, and we're calling out 
what is racism or what is something that is systemically harmful, there it will always be pushback. There will always be some um, feelings of animosity within there, but there's also feelings of growth. And I think that is the overwhelming feeling I've got working with teachers and working with administrators is that they want to know how we can better build that bridge between students and teachers, between adults and youth within this um, system of education. And so um, one of our predecessors brought up politics is for power, so is education. And so as we move forward, that foundation that we're building with racial equity and basis program is building a foundation of racial equity education to build tools for more sustainable and equitable practice for educating our youth today. So if I'm hearing from you and, and Miranda from you as well, that you you are able because sometimes we, we you know, let me say this first. We, we get it seems to me that we can get hung up on wanting to see big changes. Right. We want to see very big changes quickly. But it sounds to me uh, from the perspective that you're offering here, that you're able to see incremental change and you still, that is, um, that incremental change is able to kind of sustain you in continuing the work. Is it, is that a good way to read what, what both of you are saying? Definitely. Like when I first started this journey for social justice and social change, I knew it wasn't an overnight process. And like over the years, I guess experience has helped me to learn that you have to celebrate the little victories or you'll be sad forever. And like I said earlier, like I've, I've acknowledged that this is a lifelong process that in my lifetime, I may not have reached and being, being able to see the change that I'd like to see in this nation, but doing all that I can, why I'm here and celebrating the little victories that I'm collecting along the way is what matters. Thank you for joining us for this shorter version of our February 11th live event, which you can view anytime in its entirety on BPR's YouTube channel. And once again, Marcus and I would like to remind you that the Watterson Harvey Show is produced at Blue Ridge Public Radio in Asheville, North Carolina, in partnership with the Institute for the Promotion of Human Understanding. And you can listen to our podcast on BPR.org, the BPR and NPR One mobile apps, and on Apple Podcasts and Google Play. Follow us and get in touch on Facebook and Twitter or write us at WHShow at BPR.org. Take care.